Pastor Frank Limehouse describes a significant moment in his early ministry career. Frank is a seminary student, and he's shadowing a hospital chaplain when they're called to the room of a woman who has just received the tragic news that her son has been pronounced dead after an automobile accident. So Frank, as a pastor in training, follows this experienced chaplain into the room. The mother is weeping. She cries out over and over again, why did God do this to me? Why did God do this to me? And this chaplain, trying to be helpful, answers her question, why did God do this to me? By saying, ma'am, God didn't have anything to do with your son's death. Did you hear his, his answer? It's an answer that has little hope. Ma'am, God didn't have anything to do with your son's death. To which this mourning, grieving mother rightly and wisely responds to this foolish pastor. She says to his, his insertion, Ma'am, God didn't have anything to do with your son's death. She shouts back at him, Don't take away the only hope that I have. Do you see her defiant reply? Don't take away the only hope that I have. The hope that God hears me when I cry out to him. The hope that God understands my pain. The hope that God can ultimately do something about the, the horror that confronts me right now in this moment. Now perhaps you think the mother's hope is foolish. A foolish attempt of somebody trying to make sense of life. Maybe you would describe it as, as sort of a naive folktale that just gets people through their days. But where do you find hope? In those worst of moments, in the tears in a hospital room, where do you find hope? How do you answer this problem of pain and suffering and death? Now, some of us, we, we, we try and ignore suffering. Culturally, we actually have a lot of practice at doing this. We try and ignore the pain of suffering. We know it's there, but we fill our lives so much, maybe even with the busyness of good things, so that we don't ever have to stop and think about pain and suffering. Or we numb ourselves using the, the, the endless supply of entertainment that can just continue to scroll across the screen so that we don't have to actually think about suffering. We know we can never isolate ourselves entirely from it. It continues to weigh upon us. Now, some of us attempt to ignore suffering not merely by, by turning away from it, by, but by actually defining it out of existence. Because there are entire religious systems that will tell you that that suffering you feel, it's an illusion. You just need to get past it. If you go through these rituals, if you, if you, if you go through this lifestyle, then you can get beyond a world of pain and suffering, we're told. And maybe that's how you grew up, being told that suffering is but an illusion. Or maybe you didn't learn it in the, in the worship halls of your childhood. Maybe you learned it in the philosopher's classrooms of your education, trying to define away pain and suffering as if it doesn't really exist. But we still have to walk through life. You still have to get through this next 
week, you will still face real sorrow and struggle. And so some of us throw the question back at God. We blame Him. Why would He do this to me? And you see, there are multiple ways you can ask that question, right? There's the angry, faithless way to ask that question. The sort of, I'm done with you, God. Why would you do this to me where we walk away without any hope? Or there's the pleading, begging, longing, hope-filled response. God, why? Why is this happening? How long? What, what, should, I be, what should I be seeing here? And, and that's what Peter is doing. He's writing to a church in the midst of suffering. I mean, look back with me at verse 6 of chapter 1 in First Peter's letter, in Peter's first letter. It, verse 6, he's telling us that in the hope of resurrection, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. I mean, as we wrestle with this question, why? Why would God allow this kind of suffering? I think we first have to, have to be honest like the Bible is honest about the pain of suffering. We actually have to, to face it. And that's what, what he's doing. He's telling us we live in a world that is broken. And so we suffer at the hands of others for the things that they have done wrong. We bear the consequences of the sin and failures of others. But Peter, and in, in, in if you took time to, to read through the whole letter, we would see how this whole letter offers a glimpse of hope in the midst of suffering. But Peter says, you suffer not only because you live in a world that's broken, because other people sin, you suffer because of your own sin. So just jump with me to chapter 2, verse 1. In my Bible, there's just a big number 2. There's not even a little number 1 to to guide me there. But he's encouraging the church to get rid of the sin that's in them. He says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. He's, he's helping them to see, yes, the, the struggle of suffering is out there, but the, 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 the reality of suffering is within me. Even the malice, deceit, and envy with it that lurks within my own heart. And sometimes the suffering is because of what we have done wrong. Sometimes it's because of, of even the, the hope that we have in this gospel. Peter writes to a church whose hope in a resurrected Savior sounds strange to their neighbors. They've turned their backs as Christians on what their culture holds most dear. And so as we jump ahead to chapter 4, we see that they are suffering because they are Christians. That's what, what some of the suffering we face as believers is because of our trust in Jesus. Look at chapter 4, verse 16, where Peter encourages them, However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. You can actually rejoice in the midst of suffering because you belong to Jesus. You belong to Christ. You are His. Now, I don't have to convince you, I don't think, of the reality of suffering today. But I may need to to force you to stop and think about it, to face it, because you have a lot of practice at ignoring it. Maybe you philosophically have, have gotten rid of suffering. But this question of why, God, why would you allow such suffering is not merely a Christian issue. It's not really something that, that we as Christians have to be able to answer. This is a question, why is the world this way, 
What can I do to fix it? This is a question that every person needs to answer. This is not simply a religious question or a Christian question. This is a human question. And I actually want to challenge you to think of, it, think of it this way. Perhaps this problem of evil, that's the way philosophers would describe it, the, the question, why would a good God allow suffering? Because, because the, there are a couple of quick and easy ways to get rid of the problem is you just deny that God is good. He, he actually likes people suffering, like a, like a child holding a, holding a magnifying glass on a bright sunny day watching ants scurry. God, God likes watching us squirm and suffer. Or maybe, maybe God is good, because that answer just gets rid of the goodness of God, and you're left with an, with an evil dictator who can do whatever he wants, even bringing that suffering upon us. But maybe, maybe the, the answer is God is good, but he just, he's incapable of doing anything about it. He's incompetent. He's impotent. He does not have power to deal with the problems that confront us. And you see why that, those questions, those answers would be insufficient for us as Christians, and why then this is a problem, the problem of evil, that we as Christians have to have an answer for. But I want to press you a little bit further. Because as we go through the rest of the, the passage this morning, I, I, I want to show you, I think there are Christian answers to these questions. But I think if you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in Christ, then this is a bigger problem for you. Th think of it this way. As a Christian, the question at least makes sense to me. How could a good God allow this suffering? I believe that there is real suffering as a Christian. But if you don't believe in God, then why would you even call it suffering? Why would you care about the goodness of God? Because the question itself betrays something about the way we've been made by God. We have this instinct, this idea, this sense of fairness, this sense that there is right and there is wrong. But where did that come from? If you don't believe in God, where did this question of right and wrong come from? Because the problem of evil is a question I think Christians can answer. But as a non-Christian, you can't even answer the, the question that comes before it. You can't even explain why it feels so wrong, why suffering feels like it is disordered and shouldn't be the way that it is. Because an inherently random universe can't answer that question of right and wrong. It can't provide you with ultimate meaning. If everything just accidentally happened, then the suffering you face is just as reasonable to expect as the best things in your life. And so suffering just is without God. And yet as a Christian, I think I can even make sense of why does this question hurt us so much? Because this is not the way it is supposed to be. Now, but maybe you, maybe you, you agree with me that this person over here who doesn't believe in God and yet is trying to find an, an inherent meaning in the universe, maybe your answer is not to step back to, toward Christianity, toward a biblical answer. Maybe your answer is, is you'll, you'll join me in critiquing this person looking for meaning in the universe, and you just say, I'm giving up on any sense of meaning in this universe. 
let's stop trying to find meaning in life. Let's just make our own meaning. I, I shouldn't try and let the universe tell me who I should be. I should tell me who I should be. I should be the one who gets to decide what's right and wrong. And so you feel like there's, there's a freedom over here to, to, to critique, yes, the, the, the inconsistency of somebody who doesn't want to believe in God and yet wants, wants there to be a, a coherent meaning to the world. You're saying, there is no coherent meaning. It's just the meaning that I make. Except you haven't actually, you haven't actually avoided the big problem. Because who gets to determine if your meaning is a good meaning? What if your meaning contradicts my meaning? What if your meaning threatens my existence? What if the meaning you've given to your life involves hurting a lot of other people? See, we still have this problem of justice and goodness and rightness to answer. And, and there is no answer here for the person who wants there, there to be meaning in the fabric of a godless universe. But there is no answer for the person who wants to find meaning for himself or herself. The only place where we can find an inherent meaning to life is from God in his word. And we have an admission of the pain of suffering. But the Christian answer to these problems, to these questions, also offers us hope in suffering. Look back at verse 3. Words which you've heard repeatedly now in our service. They served as a call to worship. I've read them already to you. Chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, now that just sounds like a vaguely churchy kind of sentence, right? all the kinds of words that you would say in church. But, but stop and consider how radical that sentence is. God deserves to be praised. He is the Father in loving relationship with Jesus, His Son. Jesus, the one who gave His life to pay the penalty for our sins. That's what His name means. God rescues. God saves. Jesus is the Christ, God's King, who came to give Himself for us. He is the Lord of all. So there was a lot in that sentence. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As verse 3 continues, In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Again, words that sound familiar if you've been in church before. But words which, which drip with, with hope and are filled with meaning. We have a new birth. We were dead but have been made alive again radically, miraculously by God. We have a living hope, a certain, a, a certain belief in what will come true because of what has already happened. We have a hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And when you read all of, all of this letter, you see that, that when when Peter references the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he, 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 he's assuming his, his readers, members of the church, know all that that entails. But, but let's, let's kind of jump ahead to make sure we understand, because part of the answer to our suffering is a reminder that Jesus suffered. Part of the Christian hope is, is the recognition that, that my suffering isn't meaningless because God has done something through the suffering of Jesus. And so again, let's jump to chapter 2, but now to verse 21. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. We're called to, to a life of obedience, verse 21. To this you are called because Christ suffered for 
you. Let me say that again. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. You hear when we cry out to God, why? Why is this happening to me? Part of the answer that we have to, we have to come back to is that God understands our suffering. Because Jesus suffered in our place. See, Jesus doesn't just, doesn't, doesn't just know the facts about suffering like he knows all of the facts in the universe. He experientially, really bodily, spiritually knows what it is to suffer. And he did so not the way you and I sometimes suffer, that we're stuck in it. He voluntarily and willingly suffered for you. That's the hope of the gospel. Or if we jump ahead to chapter 4 in this section uh, where, 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 where Peter offers words of hope to suffering Christians, chapter 4, verse 13, we are told to rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. See, the suffering of Jesus matters to us because he suffered in our place. Our sufferings connect us with the Savior by uniting us in, in hope and in faith to him. And so when Peter in chapter 1 is talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, he's telling us of what has happened in the past matters now in the present, and it gives us hope for the future. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, you and I have a living hope of what is coming for us. Now, as I was, as I was preparing this week, I realized that, that this is the passage that you as a church have most frequently heard me preach from. Of all the passages in Scripture, I've returned to this one more frequently in, in hope. We've preached through it at Easter about the resurrection, the living hope that we have. We've, we, you've heard me preach through it in times of sorrow and sadness and suffering because there is hope for us right now. And God is still at work in us. We are connected by faith to Christ, but, but sometimes, sometimes the work of suffering is, is the work of God in our lives. Look at verse 7, back in chapter 1. Trials have come, verse 7, trials have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. See, sometimes part of the answer to suffering, I mean, I always want the part of the answer to be the suffering of Christ. But sometimes part of the answer to why am I suffering in this way right now is God wants us to see how he is refining us, how he is testing our faith, removing the impurities as, as gold being purified by fire, so that in the end there will be praise, glory, and honor given to Jesus when he comes again. A praise, glory, and honor that can't come any other way except through this suffering. Now that doesn't mean I can, can fully explain it for you now. But consider with me, a God who is big enough and powerful enough for us to be mad at 
to sort of shake our fists and say, why God? He has to be a God who is big enough to have a reason for our suffering. So you can dismiss God as, as, as you can dismiss this, this whole issue and just say, well, then suffering is pointless. There is, there is no hope. But then you would have to leave God out of it. For us to even bring the question is, is betraying something within us that we long for an answer from God who is able to answer. Because sometimes our perspective is limited. Limited just by the fact that we're finite people. We don't know everything that's happening. And, and, and you can see that in just the way that, that, that a simple statement in your household can become a, a confused misunderstanding. But when it comes to spiritual questions, we should, of course, be willing to admit, I don't know everything. My perspective here is limited. Maybe there's something bigger happening, even in the midst of my suffering. Now, my father was a, a city policeman before I was born. And he describes responding to a call that shots have been fired. Now, normally that is a call that would send three patrol cars to respond to the scene of, of shots being fired. But, but in this district on this given day, he was the only car that is available. So he is called to respond by himself. He gets to the scene and bang! The passenger window of his police cruiser is shot out. He opens his driver's door and, and bails out of the car, hiding now behind his car, having dragged his, his microphone, his, his radio microphone to his face, and he calls out, 1078. The most serious call that could be made, an officer needs assistance. His life is under threat. As, as bullets continue to pepper the side of his, of his police cruiser. Now at this point, the other things that had kept the police busy are set aside. A 1078 call gets, gets a response from the entire city. Now, other officers find the source of the shooting. A distance away down near the river, it's a man shooting target practice with a high-powered weapon that continues straight through the target into the neighborhood. He's only looking at what's right in front of him without seeing the reality of all that might be going on behind the scenes. Now, my dad says, thankfully, he never actually met the suspect. The other police decided it would be safer to take him into custody and get him off the scene before my dad arrived. Because sometimes we can only see what's right in front of us. And think about it, in suffering... In the midst of suffering, of course that's all we can see. I can only see what's happening right here in front of me, but maybe, just maybe, there's something bigger happening beyond my limited scope of vision. That's what Peter's telling the Christians. God is at work right now, even in the midst of your suffering, so that when Jesus comes again, your perseverance right now will bring him glory, honor, and praise. That's the hope that we have. And that doesn't mean I can answer all of your questions that if you came to me and said, but why this? Why this specific detail? Why this specific suffering in my life? I, 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 I could point you to the suffering of Christ. I could point you to the work of God in your life, but I can't give you all of the answers because our perspective is still limited. But what the Christian gospel offers us is an ultimate final answer. 
Because Peter doesn't merely point us back to the suffering of Christ, point us, remind us of the present work of God. He's reminding us of what is still yet to come. The guaranteed certainty that there will be an end to suffering. Think, think of the way he describes our living hope. Look at, look at verse 4. You and I have an inheritance. If we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It is kept in heaven for you. He's reminding us, stop staring at what's right in front of you and look up. Look up to see what is true, this inheritance that is yours in heaven. This promise that comes to us from God, or or, or as verse 5 continues, that you and I, through faith, are shielded by God's power. God is the one who is at work. God is the one who gets all of the glory for our salvation. What are you and I called to do, verse 5? Respond by faith. Faith is the, the throwing of ourselves in hopelessness upon Christ and saying, you are my only hope. Trusting that what God has done and that what God promises is that we will be shielded, protected by God's power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that's the power God is using to guarantee our salvation. A salvation which will be revealed at the end. Suffering will come to an end. There is no other view of the world that gives you that guarantee. So the Christian response to this question of suffering is the, is the deepest and richest well from which we can drink. It is true and lasting hope, rooted in the, the reality of God's work in Jesus Christ with the promise of God's power at work in us now and the certainty of God's restoration of all things. When there will be no more pain or sorrow or suffering or crying, suffering will come to an end. The Christian gospel offers us a true and lasting answer to this problem of suffering. And notice how Peter, having drawn the timeline for us, that Jesus died for us, God is at work in us now, and there is coming a future day of hope. Peter, in verse 6, having drawn the timeline, shows us how we can endure. He offers us a biblical perspective on our suffering in verse 6. In this this living hope, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while. You may have had to suffer griefs in all kinds of trials. You hear what he's saying? It's only going to last a little while. And you think, but the hours and the days and the weeks stretch long. The suffering I have is not a, is, doesn't feel like a temporary problem. This is a lifetime problem. And Peter says, yes. Your suffering will last a lifetime, but it's suffering that it lasts only a little while. For you were made for more than a lifetime. You were made for eternity in relationship with God forever. And see, Peter is not, he's not denying the reality of suffering but he's pointing us to our true and lasting hope, which is not right here, right now. There is a promise of hope, a certain promise of living hope that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Earlier this week, I attended a memorial service at the Mary Campbell Center. The Mary Campbell Center is a residential care facility for adults in our community with with disabilities. 
and a resident there, Brian, had lived there for 28 years. He was being remembered by family and friends, by staff members and neighbors. Brian was born with cerebral palsy, which made communication for him slow. He typed out words letter by letter. It took minutes to complete a word. But when people stopped to listen, Brian was willing to share real hope with them. Brian was a member of Bethel Baptist Church, a gospel-preaching church right around the corner from us, a church with whom we partner in, in hosting worship services on Sunday afternoons at the Mary Campbell Center. And Brian was a member there, and so one of Brian's pastors helped lead and share gospel hope at his memorial service. Pastor Tyler shared Brian's hope with, with our gathered neighbors on Tuesday. And he repeated a phrase that Brian often repeated when he encouraged fellow Christians. When he offered to, to, to let them see the, the pain of life, he said, we'll always have struggles in this life. Now, that might seem like a trite kind of statement, unless it's typed letter by letter. And a man whose body shows obvious signs of suffering. We'll always have struggles in this life. And yet what Brian was doing was pe pointing people beyond the hope of this life pointing them to the hope of Jesus. He was summarizing for us Peter's statement that, that this lasts only for a little while. It's just a lifetime. And so you and I are called to offer hope, one letter, one day, one week at a time, as we endure for a little while, with the certain hope that God offers us an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade, that we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that the struggles of this life will come to an end because Jesus is coming again. And so in this hope, in this good news, we as a church greatly rejoice.